Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Just a quick heads up. This podcast contains rude language and adult themes. The Philosophy of Sex We probably have heard of the full body organisms for Tantra and, you know, they exist, they're great. And they made us do these things where, you know, you, you the woman sits in your lap and then you stare into her eyes <laughs> and then you sort of create a circuit, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. uh, visualize the circuit going out of you into her and then back into you again and this sort of thing. So you don't feel that like loss of energy. You still feel like you can have another one and another one and another one. The yoga spirituality is a is a business. It's been a business for, for a long time. It is a complete system within itself. Welcome to the philosophy of sex. I'm your host, Caroline Moreau Hammond. When you hear the word tantra, what comes to mind? marathon sex sessions or ancient Eastern spiritual practices. Depending on where you look, you might get the impression that Tantra is anything from a lifestyle choice to sexual therapy to a religious practice. So the topic of Tantra is evidently a very complex one. Advocates of Tantra report improved intimacy and healing from trauma, while others warn of cultural appropriation and the extreme reduction of esoteric philosophies. With shows such as Netflix's Unwell exploring these complexities, Tantra is seemingly becoming simultaneously subject to greater popularity and scrutiny. In today's episode, we're going to explore the many grey areas surrounding Tantra. We'll also discuss how Tantra has been adapted for secularised and capitalist environments and what the potential impacts of this adaptation are. I've asked people from all different walks of life to share their musings, research and experiences. And my guides on this excursion into Tantra is modern Tantric practitioner Elisa Caro. Helping people embody and embracing their sexuality, acknowledging the sacredness of it, and through tantric practice, learning how to connect deeper. A professor of religious studies. My name is Thaneshwar Timilsena. I'm professor at San Diego State University. I grew up in Nepal in a family with a lot of tantric practice. Those things are very common for anybody in Nepal or Bengal, you know. And cultural critic and writer Vikram Zucci. I was born into a fairly religious family, also very conservative. What sparked my interest was the antinomian or the unorthodox, heterodox traditions within Hinduism, within Indian religion. You heard each of our guests use the word Tantra, and you can imagine that they're talking about vastly different things. 
Tantra does mean very different things depending on who you are and where you live. The two common labels or distinctions that we'll be focusing on in this episode are between classical Tantra and modern or neo-Tantra. In my opinion, when scholars are using classical Tantra, they are trying to make a distinction between these type of popularized forms of Tantra in contrast to what you can see in the text or in the place of people who are actually maintaining those rituals, observing those rituals. So some practices that involve various forms of seed syllables, bija mantra, geometric designs called yantra or mandalas, invoking summoning deities, installation of different mantras in the body, constitution of a different kind of cosmology, varied forms of visualization of deity or deities within the body or projected in the mandala. And sometimes that may involve archaic substance use also. These all collectively can be called tantra and someone who is using those things, categories in the practice could be called tantrika. Tantrikas and the ancient tantric texts stated that human suffering arises from the mistaken notion of separation or duality. When we read tantric literature, we come up with terms like dualistic and non-dualistic, again and again non-dual tantra, non-dual tantra. Number one, this dualism has a deep-rooted history in the West, the duality of mind and the body, of matter and consciousness. But when the tantrics are talking about non-dual, they are primarily talking about oneness of the aspirant and the deities. Philosophies they found could be frustrating if they were not brought back to personal experience. So Tantra, yes, it's got a sexual component and there are practices from Taoism and even in Hinduism. And I mean, in fact, the Taoist uh, Tantra was influenced by early Hindu Tantra where um, there are these practices, you know, that are sexual in nature. Google the word Tantra and sex will always appear in the title. You'll scroll past meditative sex, ejaculation control, or 12 positions to try. This is what most of us would think of if we hear the word Tantra. So how did this evolution take place? What is Tantra now, and who are the modern tantrics? I am Eliza, and I work as a sex and intimacy coach and as a Tantra practitioner. Tantra is a path towards awakening, a path towards enlightenment, and is a philosophy, is a way of living, and includes so much more than sex and the art of great sex. Maybe like 15, 20% of the teachings were around that. So it's really a way of living. There's one thing that Tantra has become very synonymous with, the full body orgasm. The full body orgasm, it feels like with waves of sensations and pleasure, as warmth or as tingling or as like electricity moving through the whole body. And so it's a whole body experience. 
and there is a shift of consciousness that happens as well along with it in the clitoral orgasm there is kind of like a peak so there is a peak sensation and then the sensation are kind of like fading away within a few seconds a minute a couple of minutes from the experience the full body orgasm can be much more sustained you still have energy so you don't feel that like loss of energy you still feel like you can have another one and another one and another one and you know it's not going to deplete you you can keep going yes. no problem with that so that's also like a great part of it because it doesn't leave you tired Hearing Elisa speak about orgasms, healing and connection, it's really no surprise that Neo-Tantra is so popular now and that its uptake is pretty rapidly increasing, particularly in the disconnected world we live in. Tantra has a lineage spanning thousands of years and it's really important not to reduce, deny or attempt to secularise the inherently religious roots of even Neo-Tantra. With that in mind, let's go back in time to find out more about its evolution and its adoption in the West. The Philosophy of Sex is brought to you by Becoming. Becoming offers something quite different from your typical online sex store. We combat the frustration of trying to find a great sex toy by producing personalised recommendations. Kinda like a sex toy concierge or HelloFresh with dildos. We only stock the best of the best, so whether you're starting out or adding to your collection, take our quiz, tell us what gets you off, what you're curious about trying, and we'll deliver a personalised selection of toys to your door. Pleasure is for everyone, so visit becoming.me. Becoming spelt B-E-C-U-M-I-N-G. Back to the episode. In the 1960s, we saw the birth of counterculture. The pill, the civil rights movement, anti-war sentiment, and the rejection of monogamous conservatism. By the mid to late 1960s, musicians and artists were taking inspiration from the East, trading in their tailored suits for paisley shirts and their dresses for flowing skirts and Indian beads. I went to high school and college in, in the US, and so I was exposed to a different sort of uh, environment, social and cultural environment. You know, there was, there was a lot of experimentation happening. You know, I was in this band and we emulated these psychedelic rock bands back in the day, like the Grateful Dead and so on. Tantric ideas were everywhere. The Rolling Stones fashioned their logo from the tongue of the Hindu tantric goddess Kali. The Beatles retreated to an ashram in India to study transcendental meditation. Tantric chants made their way into spiritual jazz, and LSD was the drug of choice for those seeking higher states of consciousness. There was experimentation with psychedelics and sexuality, and that's how I kind of stumbled into all of this, because it's all interconnected. This new age yoga scene and all of these things kind of come together, you know? So I got into that scene primarily through music. Tantra and Eastern philosophy was increasingly inspiring the period's counterculture movement. Free love, fashion, music and art. 
The 1960s also saw a stream of spiritual teachers and gurus arriving in the US, many quickly gaining a strong following. Why was it so fascinating to Westerners to get these ideas from India? How did Tantra develop such an identity in the minds of people in the West? Like uh, you have to go back to early missionaries, like how they completely fabricated, totally non-existent, uh, you know, no, no recorded type of archaic things to talk about Hindus because they were forced to convince their masses, the, the churches, that there is a need to bring the message of God because these people are really heathens and they haven't seen the light of God and so they need to be civilized and basically help us go to India and bring the news, good news of God. So in that process, one thing they did was to heathenize uh, the non-West and then the other was to romanticize it at the same time. It's like a huge romanticization, also countering their own Western projections on sexuality, confronting their Catholic projection on sexuality. So it just came in the process of fantasy and also the need to hiddenize and demonize the other. The foundations of British crown rule in India began in the 1600s with the Queen's orders that a small fleet of merchants sailed to India to capitalise on new trading opportunities. By the mid-1700s, the British East India Company was gaining global power in the textile trade, and they started taking hold of governance and established a capital in Calcutta, the very epicentre to the devotion of the tantric goddess Kali the British started forming a stereotype of Indian culture based on what they thought they were seeing, sexual depravity and black magic. Of course, the sex was particularly intriguing. And if you're raised in a Christian or a Catholic environment, religion has certain connotations, right? It's a conservative way of living your life and there are restrictions on your activity and your movement and there are moral judgments. One thing for sure is Tantra does not find it a taboo to incorporate sexuality within the realm of the sacred. And going back to the beginning of the episode, it was believed that sensual experiences in the body were in fact a path to the divine. But what is lost in translation is that they were neither the only means nor even the goals. They were some of the processes that were using our everyday experiences to transform into absolute experiences. So where are we going to get our experiences from? Like in everyday engagement, in eating food, in drinking, in having sex. And every mode of experience has that divine experience. The tantrics would think in the way that every engagement of subject and object is already orgasmic. Every mode of consciousness. Any moment I'm conscious of an object, I am having this orgasmic union with the other. This is the full body part of the full body orgasm that Elisa was talking about earlier. That it's consciousness shifting as well as feeling really, really good. 
But this element was lost in translation, partially due to the Western notions of duality. And words spread fast. And then its openness to sexuality kind of becomes almost like a getaway to, you know, talking about drink and then basically gives a sort of transgression. You don't have to. And, you know, also Western society likes to transcend itself, transgress itself also, mm. also confront its own cultural boundaries. And then Tantra is giving that type of new opening. So in our pursuit to transgress ourselves, it was the sexual element of Tantra that we began to morph and develop over time. And there was one figure who probably had the most influence on what we now know as Neo-Tantra. You know about Osho, right? Yes. You've read about Osho. Yes. Osho kind of was a revolutionary figure in that he taught people, the first thing he said was, look, you need to get this out of the way or you're not going to have any legitimate spiritual experience because we're all hung up on sexuality. Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, also known as Osho, became a figurehead in Neo-Tantra because of his enticing mix of Eastern mysticism and Western philosophy. Osho believed Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung had essentially laid the groundwork for Neo-Tantra to take off in the West, with their ideas around eroticism and sexual repression. Osho saw this conditioning of Westerners lending itself to the free and ceremonial sex that he was preaching. And because Rajneesh was a very popular hypnotic personality with millions to follow, he romanticized not just Tantra, but also sexuality. Although he made his brand for purely Western consumption, and he was a guru in the late uh, 60s, early 70s through 80s, and that was the right moment for him to sell those ideas in the West and a modern romanticization of sexuality became mainstream through many other gurus coming around that era, actually, coming around that era. Osho offered everything that Westerners imagined Tantra to be. Spiritual awakening, open sex, and being part of an exciting new community. It felt very constricted in the 60s with uh, so much rigidity of society. And he had a moment of like just traveling around, going to India, trying to find himself a more answer to more freedom. And that's where he met Osho and other of the teachings. And so he felt deeply touched by them. And that's why he kept going in that regard. And, and then initiated my mother as well into those teachings. My dad kind of like organized me to, to go to workshops and for me to have my first tantric massage from a practitioner that he trusted. And uh, yeah, I was so, I felt like I was a changed woman, like I was coming alive again. Whatever your thoughts are about Osho, his influence on Neo-Tantra today is undeniable. Of course, it's more complicated than that. You know, he got involved with some very dodgy people. And you've seen the, you've seen the documentary. Yes. But essentially, yeah. So, so he was the guy who brought this out into the open. And then there's a whole school of Tantra, Neo-Tantra. He is the guy. He's the guru mm-hmm. of Neo-Tantra. 
Neo-Tantra. Despite its complex history and the dramatic rise and fall of its most infamous guru, it's clearly a practice that still has a lot of power and pull over people. There's something that Tantra has that people want more of. Quite frankly, I don't disavow it completely because I see the benefits. Because people are in need of healing, you know, and many of these Tantra workshops, they encourage intimacy. We live in this very uh, impersonal age, and you're, you're, you're suspicious of the other person for whatever reason, you know, you're on guard all the time. <laughs> and Tantra uh, teaches you to be more intimate with the other person, I mean, non-sexually as well, mm. you know, where you're more trusting and open. I asked Vikram how Tantra has helped him personally. So Tantra for me is, it's helped me engage with the world in a much deeper way. I don't reject my experiences or run away from them. It's taught me how to face certain things from my past, from my childhood, traumas, which I've written about, Mm. growing up in a difficult family and so on, and how these traumas uh, manifest in your adult life and how they shape you to some degree or to a large degree, unless you learn how to unpack them and then deal with them. Uh, Tantra has helped me navigate through all that. I also wanted to hear more from Elisa about the shifts she's seen in her own clients. Often in our society, we tend to kind of compartmentalize, like divide into like boxes, parts of ourselves. So sexuality is just sexuality, but that really doesn't happen. So, you know, if someone comes and tells me that, oh, they always give, they're really a pleaser, they find it hard to receive in sex, I would say, 95% 95% of the time they do that as well in their day-to-day life. And so because of how sexuality is so holistic, then we can really shift also behavior outside of the bedroom. Sexuality is a very powerful force because during that moment that you're with somebody, you step out of your ego. And to some degree, you are merging with the other person, you know, physically and, and mentally and emotionally. However, I feel like it's alluring because everyone has as a sexuality within themselves, like a natural instinct to sexuality at different extent. Mm-hmm. So everyone has this like desire for sexuality and like who doesn't want to have great orgasm and amazing sex and like endless pleasure and feel more confident and power. So they're all beautiful qualities. And so that's why they're like very alluring. So while Tantra clearly has an undeniable capacity to make positive change in people's lives, at the same time, in the highly globalised and pluralistic world we live in, being aware of how sacred cultural practices are repackaged and sold to us seems incredibly important. It took people years and years to even allow to have these type of conversations and now you have the money you can just go to india nepal it doesn't matter everywhere not just the west the west is everywhere in the world you know any cross road and you can see the price tag for whatever the tantra you want to learn or whatever you want to achieve by means of tantric perfection so everything is viewed today as a sellable as marketable You can pretty much buy everything, and gods are no exception to that. 
yoga uh, spirituality is a is a business it's been a business for for a long time there's no business like the spiritual business like the god business right mm. yeah because people want to meet each other right it's like a dating environment you know we have to be aware of this side of the story too because it's a story that's quite relevant to the sex and wellness space. I asked Thanisvar to explain how Neo-Tantra continued to transform into an industry and how the orgasm became something to sell. Tantra as means to orgasm, in my opinion, in the contemporary West, is about a reduction going down to human sexuality to some kind of outcome, a product. It has to have a goal. And orgasm fairly defines that goal that the body, the feminine, produces orgasm. And that is the outcome of the act. The journey is already missing there. Focused on some kind of outcome. It helps commodification of the body. It helps commodification of the act of sexuality. It helps commodification of Tantra also in this mechanism of the discourse on orgasm. So overall, it's what allows objectification of the sacred, of the body, of the feminine. This is why it has been so orgasm-centric. What I also found fascinating is that Tantra has continued to evolve in the East as well, and has very different meanings to the population there. It's still more of a Satan, like this demonic Tantric is still more popular in Indian imagination than Tantra as a means to orgasm. But even then, this second type is also gaining its popularity. The Western neo-Tantra that emerged in the 1960s with teachers like Osho being reabsorbed and sold in the East is a phenomenon known as the pizza effect. This is a cultural feedback loop, named after the way the pizza spread from Italy to America, was transformed there and then taken back to Italy as a cultural dish to sell to tourists. That's the distilled explanation, but you can see how it relates. Neo-Tantra as it exists in the East now is largely there to attract Westerners. So they have to go out there and, you know, somehow survive. And so they, they, they commercialize their, their teachings. You live in a capitalist environment, so you have to some we degree survive. <laughs> I think Tantra in India, uh, as far as I know, does not have many takers. So there was a big movement with Osho when he was in India. And he had followers, celebrities and movie stars and wealthy followers. And so there was a flowering of Tantra in his time. The ashram is still there in Pune, the Osho ashram, but it's been diluted now. It's just a new age, feel good kind of place. But yeah, Tantra, it does not exist in India to any, any significant degree. For a practice that entered the Western imagination some 300 years ago through the tales of British merchants, Tantra has now firmly taken its place in our collective imaginations. In the Western world of separation and sexual inequality, neo-tantric teachers have been offering spiritual connection and new heights of sexual pleasure to an understandably eager population. 
But the beginnings of Neo-Tantra as we know it today blossomed in the 1960s counterculture movements in the West. In this time, figures like Osho created a brand of Neo-Tantra that was highly marketable in the West. And this form of Neo-Tantra has eventually been transposed back to India, where, in order to survive, many Tantric teachers commercialise their practices for Western consumption. Tantra's history is often glazed over, and there are definitely more layers to Tantra than we've been able to cover here. It's a fascinating practice, and none of this is me placing a value judgement on any parts of it, but it has been secularised, and that's something to be aware of if you're going to engage with it. Maybe Neo-Tantra is, uh, is acceptable. Maybe it can be used, but Neo-Tantra and Classical Tantra are two very radically different things because even the Hindu texts that are focused on tantric sexuality, they have verses in there that, look, if sex could liberate us, then everybody would be liberated, right? Yeah. So <laughs> as long as you understand that, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, just have a good time. If you're having a good time, you know, by all means, of course. Yeah. But it's not tantra because that's something else altogether. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, I always say how important it is to acknowledge that, at least for giving justice to that philosophy. However, right now, as a tantra practitioner, I work a lot as well with sexuality because that's what people want a lot, and also is a passion of mine. Yeah, the tantra is so much beyond that. If tantric sex can help you to transcend your own limited subjectivity, then you are using in a proper direction. But if it helps you to objectify and to subdue, to appropriate other bodies in your fantastic journey, even if you call it spiritual, that is already denying the divine in the other and that is already against the fundamental premise of the tantras. You know, we are cultivating an environment here of intimacy and joy and learning to accept people for who they are and learning to be more open about yourself and your sexuality and having better, deeper relationships. But then this is only the tip of the iceberg and there are deeper aspects to it which are held within these traditions and you can go and you can you can find them here, here and here. You know, so you can provide the links as in where these people can go if they're interested in seeking more. And that's exactly what we've done. Check out the show notes for links to further reading. A big thank you for listening to The Philosophy of Sex, and a big thank you to all of our guests. You can find us on Instagram at becoming.me. I'm Caroline Moreau-Hammond. Thanks to Zoltan Fetcher, my co-producer and audio editor, who also wrote the music. We'd love to hear your thoughts, so please leave us a review and subscribe if you don't want to miss any new episodes. Hold up. What was that? 
Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.